We're continuing in our series this morning through the book of First Samuel, and this morning we come to the inspiring story of David and Jonathan's friendship in First Samuel chapters 18 and 20. Thank you, Mike, for reading that so well. If you have a Bible, please turn there with me. And what I'd like for us to do this morning is to simply, I want to walk you through the four questions I've been asking myself as I've been reading these chapters this past week. We're going to ask, what is true friendship? Why is it so rare? Why do we need it? And what does it cost us? So what is true friendship? Why is it so rare? Why do we need it? And what does it ultimately cost us? First, what is true friendship? Look with me if you found your place at chapter 18, verse 1, right out of the gate. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This, this is evocative language, isn't it? We're not used to talking about friendship in these kinds of terms. But the Bible doesn't shy away from it. You might have noticed that this very phrase is used in our passage not once, not twice, but three times. So the first is in chapter 18, verse 1, as we've just seen. The second is in chapter 18, verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then the third time in chapter 20, verse 17. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And just for good measure, listen to how David grieves Jonathan's death in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. He says, how I weep for you, my brother Jonathan. Oh, how much I loved you. And your love for me was deep, deeper than the love of women. This is clearly love poetry. What do we do with such strong language? It might not surprise you that some scholars have wondered if David and Jonathan's relationship was a sexual one. But to me, this seems completely incredible for several reasons, and I'll just name two of the most convincing that I find. For one thing, this story has been around for 3,000 years. And the very first time that scholars and theologians and pastors had ever even dreamed of this being a sexual relationship was in 1978. <laughs> so that should tell us something. That should speak volumes, shouldn't it? And if that ca doesn't cause you pause, then just consider why the author of 1 Samuel would later describe David's adultery with Bathsheba in such damning detail but then gloss over this alleged sexual relationship that he has with Jonathan. So this explanation won't do. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates that these two men had any kind of sexual relationship. The question actually tells us more about ourselves, as you might have guessed, than it does about David and Jonathan. It tells us that our culture has a problem with intimacy. 
we really don't know what to do with it. We don't quite have a category of being extraordinarily close to somebody without it getting weird or becoming sexual. And I believe this has happened for two reasons. First reason um, is, and just follow me here, we, we've come to view our true selves as completely independent from the world around us. So we create our own destiny, we choose our own identity, we discover our own morality, and the only way we can really do that is by putting a buffer zone between us and everybody else. Because intimacy leads to influence. And so the very wisest thing we think that we can do is we don't want anyone to get too close. It's best to keep our distance. So the second reason is we've come to see our bodies first and foremost as sexual instruments. We think all physical closeness must lead to the bedroom. And men are worse at this than women. It seems to me that women still have this capacity to have close relationships with other women without it being perceived as weird or feeling odd. But the moment a man shows the tiniest amount of affection to another man, it immediately gets called gay or a bromance. Some of you may recall President George W. Bush holding hands with Crown Prince Abdullah of Saudi Arabia while they walked around during uh, Bush's presidential visit to the Saudi Arabian gardens. Um, And no doubt, President Bush was briefed on this beforehand. Now, here's what's going to happen, man. But this made so many Americans uncomfortable. And yet, in Saudi Arabia, and in Africa, and Asia, and even Eastern Europe, for that matter, nobody batted an eye. Could it be that the rest of the world and even the rest of history itself has something to teach us about friendship? Not that we all need to start holding hands and hugging each other. We do need to be kind to our culture and sensitive to its perceptions. But that friendship involves a special non-sexual kind of intimacy. Intimacy. And you want this. You need this. We need people who know what time our plane lands. Who will worry about us when we don't show up at the time we said we would. We need people who we can call and tell about the funny thing that happened in the hallway after class. We need the assurance that come hell or high water, a few people will stay with us, loving us in spite of our faults and caring for us when we're down. And more than that, we need people for whom we can care. The psychiatrist Kurt Thompson, um, our last speaker at Cafe Veritas, a program that we put on uh, with some other people at Incarnation, Kurt Thompson has said that each one of us is born into the world looking for someone looking for us. Each one of us is born into the world looking for someone looking for us. And what are we looking for? We're looking for love. We're looking for affection, for intimacy and connection. And it's not like this 
looking ever goes away. It only matures and grows until it finds eyes that are looking back at them. The philosopher Aristotle wrote that no one would wish to live without friends, even if he or she had every other worldly good. No one would wish to live without friends. But what he couldn't explain was why. Why do we have this deep longing for connection, for friendship? The Bible tells us that it's because we're made in the image of a relational God, that we were created for friendship. And so to desire friendship isn't just natural, it's holy. It's the most underestimated aspect of spirituality. It's every bit as significant as fasting and prayer. And our culture tells us that this longing can be fulfilled only by romance, only by marriage, only by sex. But the Bible tells us that there's another way, there's an even better way to fulfill this desire, and it's through friendship. So we all want this. We all need this. And yet so few of us can find it. Some of us might even admit to having never experienced anything of what I've just been describing. So that leads us to our second question, why? Why is this experience of true friendship so rare? Well, let's return to our story for a moment. You know, we didn't read the entirety of chapter 18, but we need to keep in mind that the key word in this chapter is love. Everyone loves David. In verse 22, all the servants love David. In verses 6 and 7, all the women love David. In verse 16, all Judah and Israel love David. In verse 20, Saul's daughter Michal loves David. And we know from chapter 16 that even Saul loved David, even though ultimately this love was short-lived. But Jonathan's love for David, it's a most unusual love. It's different from all the rest. And we can see clearly, we can see this clearly in Jonathan's radical generosity toward David. Look at verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now what's particularly striking about this scene is that David and Jonathan should have been rivals. Jonathan is not only a warrior like David, but he's also the son of Saul. He's the crown prince. So Jonathan's robe is not just a bathrobe. It's a royal robe. And by giving his robe to David, Jonathan is voluntarily abdicating his rightful position and recognizing David as the true future king. You see, David's identity, his kingly anointing that happened back in chapter 16, it's still a secret right now. In the public eye, he's simply a military hero. But only Jonathan has the wisdom, has the foresight to see what's really going on. To look not at what David could do for him, but to look at who David really and actually truly was. That was the difference between Jonathan's love 
and the crowd's love. And that's the difference between an acquaintance or a companion and a friend, a true friend. Each of us has contact with hundreds of people who never look beyond our surface appearance. We have dealings with hundreds of people who the moment they set on eyes on us begin calculating what use we can be to them, what they can get out of us. We meet hundreds of people who take one look at us, they make a snap judgment, and then slot us into a category so that they don't have to deal with us as persons. They treat us as something less than we are. And when we're in constant association with them, we become less. And then someone enters our life who isn't looking for someone to use, who's leisurely enough to find out what's really going on with us, who's secure enough not to exploit our weaknesses or attack our strengths, but who recognizes our inner life and understands the difficulty that we have in living out our own inner convictions and who confirms what's deepest within us, a friend. The reality is you might have only one of these friends. At most, you might have three. But these kinds of friendships are rare. They're like jewels. And it's because this kind of love is incredibly hard to find. It's hard to find someone who knows the very worst things about you, but still believes in you. It's hard to find someone whom you can sin against, but in the end, it doesn't really matter if you end up apologizing to them or not. You guys are okay either way. You're still friends. And yet, Jonathan's love doesn't just give us something to look for and long for. It inspires us. It gives us something to emulate. Maybe you haven't met a friend like the one I'm describing. But what's stopping you from being the kind of friend that I'm describing? What's stopping you from loving someone for who they really are and not for what they can do for you? Because if you're only looking for this kind of love, if you're only looking for it, but you're not actively showing it yourself, your love becomes parasitic. It becomes disingenuous. And you're only loving people for what you can get out of it. But if your goal in every relationship is to give this love, then you're already becoming the kind of person who is ready for this kind of friendship. So we've seen what true friendship is. And we've seen that it's rare. Now let's ask why we need it. When we get to chapter 20, I think we could say that David is experiencing a vocational crisis. He's fled the palace, and now he's asking Jonathan why Saul is persecuting him. He says in verse 1, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? These are words of formal protest. They're normally said to a judge in the scriptures. And yet these are the kinds of questions we've all asked our friends. You're telling them about a situation at work or about an argument you've had with your spouse or whatever, and you're looking for insight, except you're not really looking for insight. You're looking for a hall pass. 
You're looking for affirmation. You're looking uh, for someone to tell you that you're in the right and that the other person is wrong and that you deserve to take some revenge. But what does Jonathan do? Well, he doesn't come right out and defend David, does he? You know, we got a hint of that in our reading, but we see the depths of their conversation in verses 2 through 10. David says, Saul hates me. And Jonathan says, no way. Are you sure? It would have been so easy for Jonathan to say, yeah, who does he think he is? Without even trying to understand the complexity of the situation here. But he doesn't do that. He remains balanced. He remains committed to, in a sense, being David's better half, his most trusted advisor. You see, without Jonathan, David was at risk of either abandoning his vocation and returning to the simple life of tending sheep, or developing a murderous spirit of retaliation to get even with the man who was despising him uh, and despising what was the very best within him. But David is able to refuse the way of violence with Saul. He's able to embrace the way of love and service that we see played out in the rest of this book. Evil doesn't diminish him. It doesn't narrow him. And it's because of Jonathan. Jonathan protects David so that none of Saul's evil is able to get inside of him. Evil becomes powerless to maintain itself. If we're honest, most of us choose friends who are always affirming us. That's why we like them. We can come to them boiling with rage about something, and it's like they throw gasoline on it. And it feels good to vent, but we come away holding an even deeper grudge against whoever it was we were arguing with. And too many of our marriages, to be frank, are like that. The moment we get in the car after the party, we just start verbally unloading about so-and-so. And the other person in the car doesn't have the courage or the security to disagree with us or to tell us that actually we're flying off the handle. But true friends are a buffer against evil. They see the good that lies at the core of our being and they refuse to allow us to lose sight of it. They're jealous for us to become our true selves, our very best selves, even if that means that we need to be rebuked or corrected. I thank God that he gave me a few friends in college who never let me go off the deep end. Maybe you don't know my story um, I won't tell you all of it because this is being recorded. <laughs> but I'm a pastor's kid. I was raised in church. And I liked to think that I was a pretty good rule follower. But when I got to college, the peer pressure to walk away from the faith was so overwhelming. And, and I found myself being pulled further and further away from God. And then God gave me a few very close friends. We did everything together. We worked out together. We studied together. We ate together. We stayed up till 4 a.m. on Friday nights together. Everything. And I can't tell you the amount of times that these friends practically stalked me and kept me from doing things that would have destroyed me. 
And it's because of God's love to me through them that I'm here today as a Christian, as a pastor, as a father, as a husband. Because we're weak by ourselves. And we're foolish by ourselves. But good friends help us to resist the hydra of vices, sloth and jealousy and so on, that betray us against our best intentions. Good friends give us the guardrails that we need to become our truest and very best selves. Finally, what does true friendship cost us? What does it cost us? It's clear from our passage that friendship with David complicated Jonathan's life enormously. Jonathan may have given up his crown voluntarily, but in the chaos of these chapters, he also loses his relationship with his father. He nearly loses his life when Saul throws a spear at him. And of course, in the end, he loses the presence of the very friend that he laid it all on the line for. So look with me at verses 41 and 42, the very tail end of our passage. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. There's no indication anywhere that David and Jonathan ever saw each other again after this moment. These were their last words to each other. And they left in tears. But their love lasted to the very end. It stood the test of time. A true friend, as Aubrey has said a number of times, is one who's able to love you deeply, but hold you loosely. In a true friendship, there's an abiding sense that the other person belongs wholly to God. This love isn't parasitic. It isn't controlling. The love doesn't shackle you to the other person's own loneliness or insecurities. No, this kind of love is freeing. It doesn't lay claim to what it doesn't own. Each friend belongs wholly to God. And in this sense, you guys have been so kind to Mary Elizabeth and me. You know, I was hired as a curate, a temporary worker. Three years is the plan. And one of our overarching concerns upon coming here was that we would have trouble making friends, knowing that God could send us who knows where after all this is finished but you've opened your hearts to us. We've made friendships here that we'll never forget, no matter where we end up. How does that happen? How are we able to do that, to love each other like that, with no strings attached? How does that happen? Is it because our mommies and daddies taught us so well? Is it because we've acquired the skills necessary to have model relationships? Is it luck? No, it's because true friendship, we've learned, is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. 
St. Augustine was a Christian who lived in the fourth century, and he said, there can be no true friendship unless those who cling to each other are welded together by God in the love of the Holy Spirit. So how do we love someone so generously like Jonathan loved David? How can we love someone so deeply without that same love turning in on itself and looking, looking after its own needs? How are we able to love someone so persistently, so enduringly, that not even separation and suffering and even death can quench it? It's not because we're cultured and privileged. It's not because we have hearts of gold. It's because each of us has an even deeper and more abiding relationship with another friend who has shown us the way of self-sacrificial love. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 15, I've called you friends, not slaves, not servants, not even disciples or worshipers in this passage, but friends. And it'd be one thing for us to call Jesus our friend, but for him, God himself, to call us his friends, for him to initiate that relationship with us, to want that intimacy and closeness and even secrecy with us, that's something we don't think about nearly enough. Jesus wants to share his very life with you. He wants to be close to you, to be with you, to meet with you when you're all alone. He longs for a face-to-face -face relationship with you, to listen to your deepest longings and desires and to share his own with you. He wants to forgive you and heal you. He wants to see that very best part of you, that skill, that joy, that deep resilience blossom into its fullest potential, into its fullest beauty. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus so desires that relationship with you that he's willing to love you through other people. Everything you've ever loved in a friend, the way they can give you the exact encouraging word that you need, or the way they're able to accept the darkest part of you and still see the good. Or the time they gave you that perfect gift. That perfectly timed embrace. Or the time they showed up unannounced just to be with you. And make an evening out of it. Every time, that was Jesus. Every good and true friendship bears the perfume trace of Jesus' presence. He was loving you. That was him caring for you in the most mysterious way. He was disguised by the unique love of a friend who knows you better than you ever thought possible. I used to wonder if when I did finally meet Jesus, if I'd be able to recognize him. I've seen so many kitschy pictures of Jesus with long flowy hair and blue eyes that I think his real, physical, Middle Eastern appearance might catch me off guard. But then again, maybe I will recognize him. And maybe you will too. 
because he'll look like all those qualities we've always loved in our friends, but we weren't ever able to trace it back to its source. The generosity of one friend, the humor of another, the deep transparency of another, all of that will be found collectively in Jesus. And when we see him in his glory, our eyes will be opened and we'll realize how he's been present with us all along. Friendship is a gift from God. And when we open it, we find Christ himself. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.